The Tom Woods Show, episode 1661. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're considering homeschooling, you know I recommend the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum for which I created 400 videos. It's an excellent education in all the standard subjects, plus personal finance for teens, how to be an effective public speaker, how to run a home business, the kinds of things nobody teaches, but they darn well should. Not to mention it's self-taught, so you get your sanity back as a parent. Make sure you join at my special link because only there do you get my $160 worth of free bonuses you can't get anywhere else. Check it out at ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I can't tell if this audio is going to come out sounding a little echoey, but let me explain to you where I'm recording this. I am actually visiting St. Augustine, Florida for the first time ever, and I'm in a hotel, and I am recording this pretty late at night, and I didn't want to be talking at this level in my room because maybe the people next door to me will report me, and then I get in trouble and this and that. I I like being liked by the hotel staff, so I actually asked the front desk if there was a small conference room or something I could use, and I am actually sitting at the head of a conference table, but man, is it echoey in here. Well, anyway, now you know the realism. I'm I'm a real person on a real sort of vacation in a real conference room that is really echoey, so that's the end of that. I'm going to talk about a few items that I came across this week, and I need to start off by (laughs) just acknowledging that I know that I'm, you know, I'm only partly able to keep away from talking about virus-related topics, and that's just because I've never seen a topic that more dominates the news cycle than this one. I mean, there is that George Floyd incident, which of course, is uh, is very much in the news, then the riots and so on and on. But we, and we have all seen or at least seen a still shot of the video clip of that uh, terrible incident. So that did take over the news cycle just a little bit. But by and large, I just have never seen anything like this virus thing. And I take social media to be, a, especially since I follow the same demographic that listens to my show. So if I think that's a fair representation of what listeners are thinking about. So I take that as a bellwether, and I think it's just on people's minds. And we've looked at it from all different angles. And the other day, we had Gene Epstein on, and we talked about what the economy is liable to look like in the months ahead. And so we've been attacking it from a lot of different vantage points. But as I say, I want to not make the show all virus all the time, because I want people to be able to feel like there's some sense of normality out there. So we have covered other topics in the uh, in the meantime. So we, we did an episode on the uh, Libertarian Convention a couple of days ago, and I'll have a, a very, very special guest uh, related to that, hint, hint, uh, early next week. And maybe the virus will come up uh, just in conversation, but that won't be the main topic. But anyway, yeah, today it's, it's a little bit virusy today. Okay, it's a little bit virusy because I just have a few items that I want to bring to your attention. And of course, what we've heard over and over again is that when states open up, we can expect a big resurgence of cases and deaths and hospitalizations. That's been the pretty much the mainstream view. And then we've seen in the media, and even in the New York Times, we've seen 
statements to the effect that there have been surges in cases since the various reopenings. And to the extent that that's true, it's true in only a trivial sense. It's true in that there has been a huge spike in testing. So yes, if you test 10 times as many people and you find more cases, that doesn't mean there's been a spike in cases. It means you're detecting more and more cases. The issue that we care about, because a lot of these cases amount to nothing. People don't even know they have it. It's no problem. It goes away. I mean, most of the people who were being tested before were people who were exhibiting symptoms, who were sick, who were in the hospital. So now as they keep trying to test and test and test, you wind up testing more and more people who may have it, but it's not really, you know, not exactly wreaking havoc on them. And so, for example, in Florida, the and also in Texas, we've seen that the rate of positive tests, the rate of tests being returned positive has generally been uh, more or less falling and deaths have been fairly consistently falling, hospitalizations. The trends have been pretty good in these states. They've actually been pretty good. Well, you may know what happened in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Supreme Court intervened and overturned the safer at home order of the uh, governor of Wisconsin, the Supreme Court on May 13th of this year, 2020, struck that down. And the governor went on television and said, we're the Wild West. And he said, this turns the state to chaos. People will get sick and on and on. And then he said, the Republicans own the chaos. We also, let's see, who else we get? Another Democratic figure, Democratic attorney uh, said, This action will inevitably lead to more sickness and more death. The court will have blood on their hands and the people of Wisconsin will not forget. Now, the court will have blood on their hands. So in other words, the court is supposed to rule in such a way as to satisfy the governor automatically. So in other words, they're supposed to say, well, the reasoning takes us down this road, but we don't want to be accused of bringing about death. So let's pretend the reasoning goes somewhere else. Let's ignore the reasoning. What exactly is he asking the court to do? What a strange thing to say. What is he asking them to do? Doesn't even make sense. The court is just there to interpret the law and to see if, you know, make sure that nobody's going outside the bounds of what's constitutionally acceptable. That's what their role is supposed to be anyway. And then if you don't like that, then you pass a law that allows you to do whatever the thing was the court didn't let you do before. Big deal. But anyway, the court did that and all these wild predictions took place. Um, Again, the governor saying, we're going to have more cases, we're going to have more deaths. I can't tell you how disappointed I am. All right. Well, as of today that I'm speaking to you, this is May 28th, 2020, it's been 15 days since that statement. And given what we know about the virus, by 15 days, we should have seen something. If, if that order really did cause all kinds of problems or was destined to cause all kinds of problems, they would have materialized by now. But as it turns out, they have not. And let me share with you some numbers. And I'll link to this material, if you're interested, at tomwoods.com slash 1661. So May 13th, the day the Supreme Court of Wisconsin made that ruling, there were 291 new coronavirus cases. And that was out of 4,363. And that gave a 6.3% positive test rate. All right, well, five days after the court's ruling, Already the number of cases had fallen to just 144, even though there were more tests done. 
So there were more tests and there were actually fewer cases, 4,828 tests. That was a positive rate of 2.9%. Then eight days later, May 26th, the positive test rate was 3.6%, and that was 279 positives out of 7,495 tests. Just twice since that ruling has the positive rate hit or exceeded 8%, whereas the positive test rate during April routinely hit 10% per day. And so we haven't seen a spike in the number of cases per day or in the percentage of positive tests or in hospitalizations or in ICU visits. The numbers have been pretty consistent. It doesn't look like the opening did much at all. In the 13 days preceding the court's ruling, there were 105 coronavirus deaths. That's an average of about eight per day. And in the 13 days since the ruling, there were only 96 deaths for an average of 7.3 per day. So none of the predictions came true, but no one has said anything. No one's acknowledged this, and you can expect them not to acknowledge it. So anyway, I'll link to that material, tomwoods.com slash 1661. All right, next item. I'm also going to link to this at tomwoods.com slash 1661, and that has to do with social distancing and lockdowns and the idea of reducing people's mobility, keep people at home, not out and about. And this is supposed to help to slow the spread of the virus and also to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. But these days, the hospitals being overwhelmed thing is like, you know, that's so two weeks ago. We don't talk about that anymore. Now it's stay home because we just don't know what else for you to do. So just go and stay home. And the thinking is that this is saving lives, right? I mean, stay home, save lives. That's the motto. And I came across some graphical representation of the actual data on Twitter. And um, I'll link you to that thread, as I say, on the show notes page. Because one of the things, one of the tools we have that we wouldn't have had in the past is Google mobility data. We actually know something about people's mobility. We, We know about how often they're going out to the grocery store or to the salon or, or to work. And we know all this. We know how much they're moving around. And we can collect the data and watch, basically, as people slowly stop moving around so much and then come to, by and large, a standstill. And then with the slight reopenings of these various states, we see them starting to move around again. So we can now look at that and then we can compare states, let's say, where there's been a lot more movement and states where there's been a lot more stay-at-home activity. And we can see, is there any clear pattern in terms of deaths per million in each of those scenarios? Because obviously, if there are a lot of deaths per million in places where the lockdowns are not being well observed or, or there weren't any lockdowns, that would seem to indicate something and vice versa. So, How about plotting these various numbers for the 50 states and looking at them? Look at the chart and see what the results are. I mean, you would think there would be a cluster. If you've got deaths per million and the amount of social contact graphed against each other, you would think that the more social contact there is, the more deaths there will be. But when you actually look at the plot, there is no pattern that's discernible at all. The dots are just all over the place. There is no discernible pattern. Uh, then the shelter-in-place policy. Uh, let's look at it from that angle. Instead of looking at it from 
uh, people's mobility. Let's look at it from the point of view of their immobility. So does increased time at home correlate with fewer deaths per million? You plot that out, and if anything, the chart seems to show the opposite. Now, it's true that correlation does not prove causation, but is it really plausible to have causation without correlation, that something really causes something else, yet we don't see it at all? Now, some people have said maybe this result is coming about because harder-hit places had more extreme social distancing responses. Maybe that's why we're seeing this. But the fellow who actually went and plotted all the data said, I suspected this too, that maybe this inverse relationship was driven by worse outbreaks driving stronger social distancing reactions. So I tested it. I ran U.S. state case counts to see if higher counts drove stricter policy. Nope. And he says this result holds all over the world and in every component data series there as well. And then he goes on to say that if we had to choose a date, social distancing can be said to have begun in earnest on March 15th, when the, what he's calling the social interaction score went negative for the first time. So you can really, really see graphically the beginning of social distancing. Then two weeks later, it's March 29th, and that's when the peak distancing response was reached. And that response level stayed roughly stable for about four weeks after that. Well, if you look at that key date of March 29th, and you average the social distancing response for the states that got worse in terms of the virus and the states that got better, the result is exactly the same. You have to go down to four decimal places to detect any difference at all. Now, interestingly, this passage was dug out from the CDC. The effectiveness of pandemic mitigation strategies will erode rapidly as the cumulative illness rate prior to implementation climbs above 1% of the population in an affected area. Hmm. Well, we were surely past that level of disease prevalence in major cities by then in the United States. So the question becomes, could this all have been a huge exercise in political theater accomplishing nothing? the kinds of questions that real reporters might ask. So therefore, you know they will not be asked. Then there's an interesting piece of work coming out of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, uh, headed by Scott Atlas, who is a physician who recently uh, summarized what they found. And that was, he wanted to know how many, to the extent you can estimate this, how many lost years of life have there been as a result of the lockdowns? They estimate that in terms of lost years of life, you know, how many of those have there been because of the pandemic uh, in the United States? He says about 800,000 lost years of life. And the way you figure that, you know, would have to do with life expectancy and the average age of people getting the disease, getting COVID-19. And in fact, we should remember that it was Neil Ferguson, the guy everybody says we're supposed to like, the guy who, whose UK model predicted uh, vastly more deaths than there turned out to be, uh, particularly in the UK. This Neil Ferguson, recall, is the same person who said that somewhere between one half and two thirds of all people dying of the disease caused by the virus are people who would have died in the calendar year 2020 anyway. Just a couple of months down the road, they would have died. So 
that's how they're, so when we say how many years of life are, are lost by the pandemic and by the lockdowns, they're, they're looking at, well, what is the number of years we could have expected these people to live and, and uh, so on and so forth. So what's the figure that they're getting for the lockdowns? Well, they're saying that one and a half million years of life have been lost as a result of the lockdowns. Now, how are they arriving at that conclusion? Well, they're going through and looking at numbers pertaining to certain health problems where people are not getting evaluated. A lot of people are just staying away from hospitals because they're afraid or they've been turned away from hospitals or whatever the explanation is, they have not been getting treated. And doctors have been very nervous about this because this could spell trouble. So for example, emergency stroke evaluations are down 40%. Of the 650,000 cancer patients who are being treated, about half of them are missing their treatments. Of the 150,000 new cancer cases typically discovered each month in the US, most are not being diagnosed. And somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of routine cancer screenings are not happening because of the shutdown policies and because of the the government panic-induced fear among the population. Uh, And there are many, many other health issues uh, like that that we might uh, cite as well. They talk about unemployment-related fatalities that can lead to what are called deaths of despair, which are drug and alcohol overdoses and suicides. And so they calculate the likely numbers of these, and they come up with this figure. Now, of course, we can't know exact numbers here. Nobody can. The question is plausibility. Are the numbers that they're citing plausible? And they are more than plausible, as you'll see when you take a look at them, because I'm going to link to this also at tomwoods.com slash 1661. And remember, in the ebook that I just released, you can get it for free. Your Facebook friends are wrong about the lockdown. In there, I go through with citations. So in case anybody calls you on it, you have the footnotes. I talk about the UK authorities who say that there will be more preventable cancer deaths than COVID deaths in the UK because of all the diversion of resources away from cancer and toward uh, this virus. I cite the, uh, the UN saying there'll be hundreds of thousands of child deaths and the reduction of an additional 42 to 66 million of them into absolute extreme poverty. I cite another study saying that there will likely be somewhere in the ballpark of 75,000 deaths of despair. And then since then, UNICEF has come out and predicted that as a result of the lockdowns, 1.2 million children will die. I mean, the, the one thing about this virus that we can take comfort from is that it spares children. You can find a handful who have had complications, but it's a handful and it's anti-science to say, well, anybody can get it. Yeah, very strictly speaking, that's true. But it's kind of like anybody could get struck and killed by a passing horse at the Kentucky Derby. I suppose that's technically true, but it's not particularly helpful to, to dwell on that. So the numbers, you put them together, it's, it's not right for somebody to say to you that you just don't care about people and you just want them all to die. What do they say to all these things? Are they going to say, well, I don't believe any of those models? Well, then why should we believe their models? Is the new rule of science that we accept the findings of a model if it conforms to what I already want to hear? Is that what the people who lecture me about science are going to be saying these days? When this thing is over, 
Somebody, can't be me, somebody has to write the definitive book on it. We cannot let them get away with this. We cannot let them get away with the idea that they saved our lives. Because a lot of people believe that. Oh, look, it would have been even worse without these measures. That's not obvious at all. And meanwhile, they have they've ruined people's lives and no doubt taken people's lives in some cases. Somebody with MD after his name has to write a book. It doesn't matter if you're not an epidemiologist. Yeah, the nitpickers will point out that you're not an epidemiologist, but the average person won't know the difference. You have to have an MD after your name because people won't listen to you otherwise. Well, you're not a doctor. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that you're super informed and whatever. To these people, it doesn't matter. You have to have those magical letters after your name. So if, if you are a physician and you're a competent writer, you should consider being the person who writes that book. It's got to be done. We've got to get this right. It's been so tragic when we've gotten things wrong in the past because then we've just repeated those errors. So we have not been successful in getting our interpretation of what caused the Great Depression out there. Not everybody has read Murray Rothbard's book, America's Great Depression, the way they should have. And the result was in 2008, they did even more of the dumb stuff they did in the years following 1929. But this is, this is even more severe because this is a takeover of our entire lives. And we cannot allow this to become a habit. Somebody's got to write that book. Somebody's got to write that book. Think about it. If you're thinking to yourself, maybe I should write that book, then maybe you should write that book. And there should be more than one. It should be everywhere you turn so that the other side is completely on the defensive. We got to get this right. Now, I'm happy to say that the other day, earlier this week, I was in Delray Beach, Florida, as I mentioned on yesterday's program, 1660. I did indeed go visit Tom DiLorenzo, who's been a guest several times. He's the author of The Real Lincoln, among other uh, very good books. He's got another book coming out in early July that I like very much and that I wrote a back cover blurb for, so we'll get him back on for that. But we went out and enjoyed some live music together. And we did so at a venue where they, they serve food, they serve drinks, but somehow I, haven't, I didn't stick around for earlier in the day or later in the day, so I don't exactly know how it works, but it's kind of an open-air bar. So there are no walls. I mean, I guess they must put something down at some point. But during the performances, there are no walls. So there's a breeze flowing through the whole time. So it was kind of like we were outdoors, but mainly we were indoors. So it was just the right balance to make people not panic that they're going to get the virus by listening to live music. And we did that two nights in a row. And I'll tell you something, it was so refreshing to have that experience again. So take heart, everybody. If normal life has not yet begun to return to where you are, it's bound to. It's going to. People are starting to crack. At USA Today, as I noted in my newsletter, and you can get my newsletter, which you should be getting because it's darn good. My newsletter you get when you sign up for Wrong About Lockdown, the, uh, over at wrongaboutlockdown.com, the ebook. You also get the newsletter. And um, if you don't like the newsletter, you can just you can just unsubscribe. But you would have to be mentally deranged to unsubscribe from it because it's really good. But anyway, I noted in the newsletter that USA Today ran an opinion piece by a member of their board of contributors saying, look, I'm a left-wing progressive and I say enough's enough. I was one of these people saying, we got to stay inside till we're safe. And now I, I say this is ridiculous and unsustainable. So the cracks are starting to appear. We're going to stay strong, but they're going to buckle 
Because on some level, as crazy as they may be, they're still human beings and they still have human hearts beating in there. And that's our secret weapon. All right, listen, folks, probably by now, you are besieged by people who have crazy, horrible, life-destroying opinions on this very subject. And you're afraid to talk to them because you're going to be called terrible names and they're going to be uncharitable towards you and just assume this must be because you want to kill people. You know, I mean, why, why their side is so vicious and uncharitable is a good question. But anyway, a great haven from that is my elite group, the Tom Woods Show elite. These are smart, genial people. We have great conversations. Nobody gets accused of being a grandma killer. This must sound like paradise on earth to you right now. And if so, you belong in there. And I will be delighted to welcome you in there. And the way to get there is through supportinglisteners.com. And if you like and appreciate what I'm doing, warm my heart by becoming a member over at supportinglisteners.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.